Hey, last week, uh, due to the interest of uh, the time that was remaining, I had to refrain on sharing a couple of things that relate to Mother's Day, and I knew that it really wouldn't matter because it related to what we're going to be um, looking at as far as our topic for today. And uh, the title of this is called, <clears throat> Some of the Things My Mother Taught Me. Some of the Things My Mother Taught Me. Number one, my mother taught me religion. She said, boy, you better pray that that comes out of the carpet. So I learned religion. My mother taught me logic. If you fall out of that swing and break your neck, you're not going to go to the store with me. My mother taught me foresight. Make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. I've always thought, you know, if I get in an accident, no one will know I had clean underwear on. But that was, you know, there was no sense talking about it, thinking about it. Just think about it for a second. My mother taught me about the science of osmosis. Shut your mouth and eat your supper. My mother taught me about contortionism. Well, you look at the dirt on the back of your neck. <laughs> My mother taught me about the weather. Man, it looks as if a tornado swept through your room. My mother taught me hypocrisy, which I mentioned last week. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. My mother taught me about behavior modification. Stop acting like your father. <laughs> My mother taught me about receiving. You're going to get it when we get home. Medical science, if you don't stop crossing your eyes, they're going to stay that way. My mother taught me about humor. When that lawnmower cuts off your toes, don't you come running to me. <laughs> My mother spent some time and taught me about sex. Uh, how, how do you think you got here? <laughs> My mother taught me about wisdom of age. When you get to be my age, then you'll understand. And the most favorite of all time, my mother taught me about justice. One day, you'll have kids, and I hope they turn out just like you. <laughs> I like that. Today, in our own ongoing study of the book of 1 Timothy, we come to a passage that will focus our attention on what we'll call the ministry of women. The ministry of women. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 2, and we'll pick it up at verses 8 through 12. Or through 15, actually, we'll go through 15. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, starting with verse 8. We read these words. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, Modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction and with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. <clears throat> but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You know, I love passages like this because over a period of time, for one reason or another, people say things like, oh, this is a controversial passage, a controversial topic. And I just smile and I laugh because I, I think any, any topic, any subject that flies in the face of a culture that is in rebellion against God will be controversial to say the least. 
you know, think about it. You know, the gospel in and of itself that man is a sinner, sinful, rebellious towards God, separated from God. Born into the world, separate from God, born dead spiritually is controversial to those who think, hey, we're all good, I'm good, you're good, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, and there's a lot of ways to heaven, a lot of ways, you know. And it's like, hey, the gospel is controversial in that it is very specific and it is very um, narrow-minded in God's view of the reality of salvation. And there's one God, one mediator between God and man. We saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to be made right with God. And that's by repenting. God's command to every man is to repent and turn from sin and turn to God. And to trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And the Bible says for those who receive him, they become children of God to those who believe in his, in his name. Jesus said there's no other way to the Father but through me. That's controversial. So when I look at a passage like this, I go, come on, I mean, how, how difficult is this? You know, in light of everything else that the Bible has to teach. And as we'll see as we go through it, it's not as difficult nor as controversial as some try to make it. As in our previous message, the section in verse 8 opens with an introductory therefore, which refers back, if you recall, to the last time we were together, to the exhortation to prayer in verses 1 through 7. First of all, in verse 1, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. First of all, above everything else, God's people are to be people who pray. Pray, entreaties, supplications, our needs, prayers, worship, petitions, and thanksgiving, intercession, and giving God thanks for the things that he does in our life on a regular basis. This is a continuation then of the first uh, section or these first seven verses of chapter 2 which discusses prayer and in the public worship services of the church. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy concerning how the churches are to operate and what they are to do. Remember, these, this, this letter is part of a, a, a series of letters, three, first and second Timothy and Titus, that are called the pastoral epistles, which give instruction as to how the church should conduct itself in God's house. And basically, this is what we have happening here. And so he's telling us how we are to operate, what we are to do. And the primary point is in public meetings, as shown in the word, if you look at verse 8, it says, therefore I want men in every place... The term every place has to do with every place. Literally, it means every place that the body of Christ would meet in corporate worship or gathering. In that context, Paul mentions two things. Number one, what men are to do in this context. And number two, what women are to do. And with all this in mind, let's look at the ministry of women as uh, laid out for us in this particular passage. And the first thing that we're going to see is that the activity or their activities, as far as women are concerned, their activities are restricted in certain situations. And it's really important to emphasize not only the words restricted, but also in certain situations. Because the first thing is, you, you, don't you tell me I can't do something. See, the heart of man is in rebellion against God. And immediately when someone's told they can't do something, that's the first thing they want to do. It's something within us that's called sin nature that when God says something, we go, no, we don't want to do that. See, the, the, the person who is dead to spiritual things, when God tells them something, they, they're not receptive to it. They can't hear it. It's like speaking in two different languages. There's something within our nature when we tell our children when they're little, don't touch that. That's the first thing they want to do. In the construction business, for, for example, in, in our business, we go out on job sites and they'll say wet cement. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, there's always going to be some idiot that's going to go, I don't think it's wet. And that's the footstep that you find in the cement. Or you go into the building and they're painting and it's like wet paint. It is. It's wet. 
You know, well, I mean, what is it, you know, that we have to always push the envelope when we're told that there are certain things we can do, certain things that we can't do? Well, the, the, the reality as we look at this is the, 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 the role of women, the ministry of women, the activities are restricted in certain situations. And the key to understanding that is in the verse 8 that we just saw, therefore, and I said it already ties into the verses 1 through 7, and deals specifically with the exhortation of prayer in the public worship setting. God's instruction is very clear as to the role of men in this setting. Because notice what he says. He says in verse 8, he goes, Therefore I want the men in every place or when the church gathers or meets together. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, the same phrase is used. And in every case it refers to corporate worship, public assembly like we have here today. He's saying this is what God's will is in this environment. He says, I want the men, and the word for men is a word that is for men as opposed to women. You know, we've got this, you know, this uh, getting away from the sexes, gender, gender-free Bible that, you know, people are promoting, and it's nonsense because, you know, God made us male and female. He created us male and female. And there are specific roles for men. There are very specific roles for women that we will identify in this passage. And to, to violate that is a violation of the order and structure in which God has created. He's saying, I want the men. If he meant the women, he'd say the women because he's going to share with us what the responsibility for women is. He says, I want the men, as they gather together, I want the men, he says, I want, which actually can be translated, I command or I propose. So it's not optional. Sometimes we go, well, this is just Paul's feelings. This is just Paul's idea. This is just, you know, well, you know what, this isn't me, but, you know, hey, wait a minute. All scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 18, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped for all good work. In that particular case, man means mankind or brothers and sisters in Christ that applies to all of us. So he's, he's saying that, you know, I command in this environment that it's the men who take the leadership role when it comes to corporate prayer has to do with public worship. It has to do with the assembly of the church. And God's demand is that, that men take that leadership role. <clears throat> if you recall last week, we had our friend here who was a missionary in, in, in the Philippines area. And when the language and when the Bible was translated into the language of the local group, uh, local tribe, she said they began to read it. And for the first time that a man was there that read it said, well, it says here that the men should pray when we gather together. I will pray, says this man. That's the sim- that, see, that is a simple, trusting heart that Jesus says, come unto me as a child. See, when we read scripture, if we've come to know Christ and we're born again, the spirit of God lives within us. We read the Bible and the spirit of God says, amen, that's right. This is truth. And God will affirm that in our spirits when we hear the truth of God's word that what is being said is true as opposed to what we've already talked about as a lie. You can sit and you can hear something taught, you can sit and hear something proclaimed and God's spirit within goes, no, there's something wrong with that. I don't know yet what I heard, what it is, but I know there's something within my spirit saying that's not right and we're to examine the scripture then to find out what exactly is it that we heard that just doesn't line up to what God has to say. So as we look at this, he's saying that, hey, God's will is for men to take the role of leaders when it comes to corporate prayer. That is God's role for men. And you know what? There isn't a woman that I know who doesn't want a man who is a leader. 
And yet at the same time, there isn't a woman that I know that will just accept that leadership without there being a lot of tension. It's like, I want you to be the leader, but you know what? Only when you're going to lead the way I want you to go. <laughs> you know, it's that old henpeck thing. You know what? You know, all the guys lined up in one line and the one guy's by himself. And he goes, well, why are you over here by yourself? You know, all the henpeck guys line up over here. You know, all this big line of guys were over here. And the one guy was way over here by himself. And they went over to him and said, why are you over here? He said, I don't know. My wife told me to stand over here. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just, that's the way it works. And uh, so he's saying that in the public worship assembly, it's important at this point to, to, uh, to make clear that this restriction doesn't mean that women are not to pray. It doesn't mean that women are not to proclaim God's word. Or even that women are somehow spiritually inferior to men. In fact, all believers are to pray without ceasing. And women are equal heirs in Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. So that there is no misunderstanding as to what the Word of God teaches, the role as to the role of women and as to the role of men. In Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 24, we read these words. It says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. And, and understanding the context, the context is very simple. The purpose, as you remember, of God's laws, according to Romans chapter 3, is to identify that each one of us are guilty as God says we are. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, none are righteous, no, not one. The laws of God were used by God to show that we are guilty as charged before God. If you've ever lied, if you've ever stolen, if you've ever cheated, if you've ever dishonored your mother and father, if God wasn't always first in your life and every decision that you made, if you wanted to covet somebody's job or somebody's possession or somebody's wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend, if you've ever done any of those things, God says you are guilty of violating God's law because he says don't do those things or do those things. Honor your father, father and mother. Uh, put God first in your life. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you ask somebody, have you always done that? Well, no, not always. Well, then you're guilty as charged. See, the purpose of God's laws is to help us see what God already knows, and that is we are spiritually dead and in rebellion against God. We come into the world because Adam sinned. Sin came into the world, and with sin came death, spiritual separation from God, ultimately physical death, the soul that sins and dies. That's why we all die. So the point of the matter is, is he's saying, listen, you know what the bottom line of the laws of God is to help us see that we are guilty as charged, period. It'd be like driving up the freeway and saying, well, you know what, I wasn't speeding, and then, you know, you got a radar thing, and here it is, and you go, wow, I guess I was. See, we need an objective standard to measure our behavior against what God says is true. He's saying, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith and not by works. You can't work your sentence off, so to speak. You can't work good behavior-wise. You can't go up, go out in the freeway and pick up papers and trash along the freeway and work off your guilty sentence because we're talking about eternity here. The way you so-called work, work it off is you spend eternity separated from God in hell and you don't get out. You don't work your way out of that mess that we're all in. We're condemned before God. And the sentence is eternal damnation or separation from God for those who do not trust God's way of being saved, which is trusting in the death of Christ upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. That's the only way, and that's justified by faith, by grace, God's grace, granting to us which we don't deserve, withholding from us which we do, which is mercy. By God's grace, we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, so none of us can boast. See, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves or clothed yourselves with Christ. Now listen, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What is the context of this passage? It has to do with salvation. I read in the paper this morning, I had a little bit of free time, uh, while I was waiting, and um, I, I read in the paper in the uh, local section of the Orange County Register a woman who was ordained as a priest. The church that ordained her as a priest used this verse, uh, Galatians 3.28, to say there is no difference in God's eyes between men and women, and therefore we will do what we want to do. And I say that that is a violation of the context of this passage. That is not what this passage is referring to. And anyone who would read that and say, you know what, this says that we're all equal in God's sight. I say, praise God, you're right, you read it correctly. If you're referring to the fact that all of us are equal in God's sight and that all of us have been saved by God's grace through faith and not of ourselves. There is no distinction in the eyes of God. Salvation is open to all people. For God so loved the world, the entire world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. There is no distinction in God's eyes between Jews and Greeks. And, and as he goes on, it says, between slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ when it comes to salvation. That does not eliminate the distinction in the roles between male and female as identified in Scripture. God made us male and he made us female for a very distinct purposes that we will see as we go through here. So this restriction as far as referring to men taking the leadership in public worship setting and even then understand that not every man qualifies to take that leadership role. You can have, you can have women sitting there going, well, it's not fair that any guy could just lead. No, no, that's true. That's not right. What's, you know, I talked to somebody this morning and said, you know what, God is just, you know, and life's unfair. You know, get over it. You know, life's not fair. <laughs> so what? God is just. What's, the, what's your point? And, and the point is, is that God is just. And as we see this in the public worship setting, going back to 1 Timothy, not every man is qualified for those, he says, and let the men, definite article, the, indicating the men that are going to be the ones who pray, he says those men better have holy hands, lifting holy hands before God. You know, when it comes to prayer, there are those, and sometimes you'll see in certain churches, you'll see pe people lift their hands. That's biblical. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of precedent in Scripture. You come before God with holy hands. You raise them up before God. The context here has to do with the fact that you're showing God by raising your hands that there is nothing in your life that is displeasing to God, nor is there anything hidden. The whole purpose of a handshake, historically, was that you would reach out and show someone you didn't have a weapon. And I laugh because I shake hands pretty regularly with people that that's a good thing we're doing it. You know, hey, nice to see you. Yeah, me too. You know, but, uh, but the bottom line is, is that, you, you know, that's the purpose of it. And so here he's talking about lifting up holy hands. Holy hands indicates the prerequisite for effective prayer. Men who lead in prayer are to be holy, which means by definition unpolluted, unstained by evil... And they also must not be characterized, as it says here in verse 8, uh, by wrath and dissension. By wrath and dissension. See, they must be holy in heart and deed. they got to be walking the walk and not just talking the talk. There must never be an opportunity in, the, in these prayer settings where a person uses that format to pr present their own agenda before God. 
See, we're always seeking God's will in our life. As we pray before God, we pray, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. What is your will in this situation? We come to you with what our needs are. We come to you interceding for those who are in our life that we have concerns for. You know, I'll give you an example. I get involved with the lives of people at some of the most traumatic moments of their life. We had a friend who came by the other day. His mom just, they found out she had terminal cancer. She's got four months to live based on the cancer that she has. You know, and the prayer is, and Nathan, all of you who are here, that knew the young man who had his arm and shoulder amputated and he stood here and he dedicated himself to the Lord with his, with his wife and his son. You know, when we got together to pray, it was like, Lord, you know, if it's your will, heal him. But see, we've always got to be willing to accept the fact that, you know what, God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And God's purposes and plans are all often different than ours. While we may pray specifically, Lord, our prayer is that he would be healed so he can, so he can live a life that, that, that would be pleasing to you with his wife and with his son. And, and uh, you know, and I thought about that as I sat on, at his bedside when, when the Lord called him home. And I said, you know, God, you know, it's your will. And we accept that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were led into the fiery furnace, said, you know what? Well, we don't really know what God's will is in this case. If his will is to save us, he'll save us. If his will is not to save us, then it doesn't matter for, you know what? Even though he slay me, says Job, I will trust in him. I will trust in him. And we will still never bow down before the stupid idol that you made. See, we don't always know what God's will is, but we've got to be in a position where we accept it as it's revealed to us. But we have to earnestly seek it. See, we can't say, God, you know, this is my will, and now you stamp it as if God exists to serve us. We are saved from condemnation through Christ Jesus our Lord so that we can serve him. He is God and worthy of all service. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 6 says, let us glorify him in our earthly bodies. So as we go through and we look at this, we realize that those who are in that position are to be holy, separate from sin, and that they're going to have any agenda other than seeking the will of God. So women are restricted in certain situations. Number one, prayers in the public worship setting. And as we'll see when we get to 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 3, they are also restricted as far as God is concerned, as word commands, that they shall not be in a position of overseer. The word overseer, bishop, elder, pastor is used interchangeably. And yet at the same time, not all men qualify for that position either. And there's some very specific qualifications that we will look at when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the restrictions are only in certain areas. We need to underline that, but they are restrictions nonetheless, and we must accept it. Now, the second thing is, as it, as it relates to the role or the, uh, the ministry of women in the public worship setting, um, he goes from what they cannot do to what they must do. And that has to do with the, their appearance should reflect what we would call a godly lifestyle. A woman's appearance in the public worship setting should re reflect what God calls a godly lifestyle. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. The word likewise, again, helps us understand that in a similar way as men should be right with God, as we mentioned, holy, unpolluted, unstained by sin, without wrath or dissension, in the same way that men are to be holy before God in the public worship place, and in every place, by the way, he also says that women in the same way should be 
holy in their presentation before God. God holds women to certain standards in regard to public worship as he holds men. And specifically in the role of women, he will lay out five guidelines that relate specifically to women. The first guideline, after we look at, and by the way, you'll notice that the word women is emphasized just as the word men was. I want women, I want men. The men are to pray with holy hands before God. The women are to do the following. What should be uh, the appearance that women should reflect as far as a godly character is concerned? Number one, there's five guidelines that he gives us. The first one has to do with condemnation. And what I mean by that is it has to do with the condemnation of sloppiness. The condemnation of sloppiness. Notice in verse 9 the word adorn. Women are to adorn themselves. The word adorn is from a Greek word that gives us in English cosmetic. Cosmetic. It literally refers to the cosmos or how God has put in order, by definition, put in order or arranged the universe. It's fascinating. What is the purpose of God's universe? As we look out and see God's universe and we see order, we see structure, we see purpose, the Bible tells us the purpose of all of God's creation is to help man understand that he exists. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. Within the heart of every man, God says that there is not only a conscience that we're created in the image and likeness of God, distorted by sin, but he's saying, look around at what I created and know that I exist. There's a person who can walk out and look at the stars and not within their spirit know and be troubled by the fact that, you know what, how did this all get here and what's the purpose to it? The greatest purpose of all is to help humanity understand we have a creator, it just didn't happen. We have a creator, it just didn't happen. We didn't evolve according to the nonsense that we hear in our culture. When man doesn't have an answer to something, he slaps like 50 zeros after it, and then they go, well, gee, if it's 200 trillion years old, you know, who am I to ever, you know, question or challenge that? It's like, what? Every time I hear that, it just drives me crazy. It's like, what? You know, because you don't have an answer, throw you know, 700 zeros after it, and we all go, ooh, aren't you intelligent? You know, and it's like, you know, no, I don't think so. Sometimes PhD stands for pout higher and deeper. But, but you know, <laughs> if it violates or in conflict with the revealed will of God, you know what, I don't care how many degrees you have after your name, you're, you're foolish. So, because a fool says in his heart that there is no God, and there's no hope for foolish people according to the word of God. We've got to be very careful when we look at this. See, it's condemnation. Now you go, well, what's that have to do with a woman's role in ministry? Well, hey, listen, here's what it has to do. It has to do with God condemns sloppiness. He's saying, put yourself in order. What's the purpose of coming and putting yourself in order? The purpose is to come and meet God where he is in the place of public worship. To get yourself fixed up, to arrange or to put in order, you know, Spend a little time, make yourself look decent from the standpoint that, you know what, I'm going to meet the Lord today, and I want to look my best. It has to do with presenting oneself, showing a little concern for how we look in the presence of our God. Put yourself in order and go and meet the Lord in public worship. The ministry of women involves being well-arranged, tasteful, and neat. You know, unfortunately, many in our culture spend more time and effort to arrange themselves for work, for a date, public functions, 
than they do for public worship. God says, adorn yourself. Arrange yourself. Put yourself together. Spend a little time as if, you know what, you were going out on an important date. How much more important can an earthly date be than the date to meet your creator? See, isn't that awesome? What's the role of a woman? There's a condemnation against sloppiness. There's also a concern for what might cause others to stumble. Notice he says, I want you to adorn yourselves with proper clothing. Proper clothing, braided hair, gold, pearls, costly garments, all tied together. And in simple terms, the ministry of women involves in a public setting, not showing up for public worship dressed like a hoe. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with that and you're a little older, the word would be hooker or the word would be prostitute. But it has to do with not showing up looking like that. Provocative display of your body. You know, I prayed many, many hours as to what word to use to help you understand. (laughs) So I did not take that lightly because I knew I was heading into dangerous territory, danger Will Robinson. But the reality is there's no way I can get around it because that's exactly what it means. You don't show up in the public worship service looking like your work in Harbor Boulevard. And, uh, you know, it's important to remember that Paul had already warned Timothy about the danger of false teaching and its subtle yet dangerous influence on believers. And I want you to understand the culture in which this was being written. In the Roman world, the female principle was a part of every heathen religion and women occupied a prominent place. So what happened is, is that women are saying, hey, you know what, we are free in Christ. There are no roles. There's no differing between men and women. You know, we're all the same in the Lord. So I can do whatever I want in the public setting and because I'm no longer held down by men. And so the, the extreme was that they saw those heathen religions where women prayed, played a very important role as a priestess, so to speak, and there was no more morally immoral, corrupt place than what we find happening here and not only in the cities of Corinth and Ephesus and the surrounding areas, but the bottom line was every one of those areas had religions that surrounded uh, prostitution. If you go to the city of Corinth, even today when we visited, there was the Acro-Corinth or the highest point, the Acropolis, which just means the highest or the highest point of a city. There was the Acro-Corinth. On the top of it was a temple that was there for the 1,000 prostitutes who worked their religion from that particular area. And so in context, it becomes very important to understand when it comes to worship, you know, what what Paul was saying, he said, you know what, the reason I want women to have their hairs covered, their hair covered as they came to worship had to do with the fact that women priestesses, prostitutes who were engaging in what they called religion were women who took pride in the fact that they made their hair a certain way, They, they, they had braided hair and they put gold in their hair and it was all part of an outward appearance to attract men to their religion. So he's saying is, basically, don't be like them. You need to be different than the world that we live in. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are you transformed? But through the word of God. God is saying to all women, you know what? Take some time, arrange yourself because you've got a very important appointment. You're coming to spend time with me, to praise me, to worship me, to be instructed through my word. Come and prepare yourself as you're coming into the presence of the king. He said, and also, you know what? Be very careful about how you dress. And and there's a concern as to not cause a problem in the life of other people because of that. Read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 as it relates to the appearance of an immoral woman. 
God is saying, you know what, it's important that we recognize and understand that in the context in which we find this, there was a very serious problem of sexual immorality and women using religion as a means to lure men into it. And it just preyed upon their natural uh, sexual desires, sinful desires, and that's why 1 Corinthians has to do a lot with sexual immorality. That's why chapter 6 is all about sexual immorality. That's why chapter 7 says, hey, the only way that you can, that you can find pleasure in a sexual relationship is let each, man have her own, uh, at least let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. That's God's ordained way to meet those sexual needs and it's pleasing before the Lord. But it follows a dissertation on sexual immorality. It's important that we understand the context. The third thing as a guideline when we come to the role of women in ministry is that there needs to be a control of her emotions. He says modestly and discreetly. The words modestly and discreetly refers to a soundness of mind that checks the passions and desires. It refers to uh, what she feels about herself. There's there's to be a spirit of humility rather than arrogance or boldness. 1 Peter 3, read it and compare it to Proverbs 7, where the immoral woman was rebellious and she was arrogant and she was loud and boisterous. See, and and this this control over those emotions, a woman is to reject anything that's dishonorable to God. Anything dishonorable to God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 18. In verse 6, we pick it up, it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, Matthew 18, 6, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom that stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life, eternal life, crippled or lame, than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. He's saying, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. This passage has to do with causing others to stumble. And it's very clear that it is better to be dead than to cause another person to stumble into sin. It is better to be dead than to cause another person to stumble into sin. And so, ladies, you have to ask yourself the question, what is the purpose of what I'm about to put on? What am I trying, what's the message that I'm trying to convey? And it goes into the next one, and that has to do with, you know, what we need to be careful as women as to what we wear, our outer appearance. If your outward appearance is to draw attention to yourself, and if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, talking about braided hair and gold and pearls and costly garments, with an outward appearance, which you have to ask if it causes others to stumble or causes others to, for you to get the attention that the Lord should get, then you've missed the whole purpose of a believer coming to worship and praise God. Our purpose is to come and deflect all attention from ourselves to Him. To give God all the glory, to give God all the praise, to give God all the credit because He's worthy to be praised. And if you come dressed to the assembly so that 
the attention is on you and not on God, then you've missed the whole purpose. The 4th century church father John Christentum wrote this. He said, well, what then is modest apparel? Such as covers them completely and decently, not with superfluous ornaments, for the one is decent and the other is not. What? Do you approach God to pray with broidered hair and ornaments of gold? Are you come to a ball, to a marriage feast, to a carnival? Where there such costly things might have been seasonable. Here not one of them is wanted. You are come to pray, to ask pardon for your sins, to plead for your offenses, beseeching the Lord. Away with such hypocrisy. See, the wearing of expensive clothes and jewelry. And I know guys are looking at this going, see that right there? Word of God says, you know, don't worry about braiding your hair. And uh, gold's out, pearl's out, costly garments. This is great. Praise God. I love this verse. <laughs> you know, I'd buy you some nice stuff, but I don't want to cause you to stumble. <laughs> you know, that's how easy we can distort the word of God. But that's not what he's talking about. You know, the wearing of expensive clothes and jewelry drew the attention away from God to that woman that came into the assembly. What he was saying is that there are places to get all decked up and go, and you know what, and you want to be the center of attention, then hey, you know what, that, that's between you and God and what your motives are. But in the other token, you've got to ask yourself, well, how do I know if what I'm wearing is appropriate? And I say, you know, the biblical answer is very simple. You know, girls, ask your mom. Wives, ask your husbands. All right, maybe that isn't what the Bible teaches. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, got you going there for a minute. But no, seriously, I mean, there, there's a very serious point, and that is this, that, you know what, I mean, bottom line is, is that, you know, children obey your parents in the Lord. You know, we've had many conversations in our household over a number of issues like that. It's like, you know, you know where are you working tonight, you know? And, and so that, you know, that would be one way to make the point, you know? You know, it's kind of like, I remember E.V. Hill said one time, this guy came up in an old beat-up van, you know, he was beeping from the street to pick up his daughter, and E.V. Hill's a pastor, and they said that, uh, you know, he heard this, he looked outside, he saw this guy, is just a mess, and finally, the guy broke down, came up, knocked on the door, and said, you know, is, uh, is uh, whatever her name was, is she home? And he looked at him and said, not for you, and slammed the door shut in the guy's face. You know, like half hour later, his daughter came down saying, has anybody come for me? No, not for you. You know, and so that was his point. No, not for you. And so what, what is appropriate, and what appropriate is this, verse 10, notice, but, but is a contrast. But it has to do with instead of dressing to bring the appearance or the attention upon yourself, dress in such a way that God gets all the attention. It's a contrast. And the contrast is this. But rather by means of good works, as befits women, making a claim to godliness. In contrast to being externally sloppy, seductive, drawing attention to oneself, he says, in contrast to that, focus on good works. Works that are genuinely good, not merely good in outward appearance. First Peter chapter 3, we'll look at that in a second. Good works mark, must mark a Christian woman who by virtue of their profession of love to Jesus Christ have publicly committed themselves to pursuing godliness. Godliness refers to a reverence to God. Instead of asking your parents, instead of asking your husband, I would challenge you to ask God. God is what I've got on or what I've got out. Is it appropriate to wear as I come to meet you to worship and praise your name? Is that appropriate? And allow God to speak to you. Because we all are in submission of God. 
We're troubled when somebody else says, well, you're not wearing that, are you? You know, it's like, who do you think you are telling me what to do? Well, you know what? It goes back to roles, doesn't it? It goes back to the role of a parent in a home. It goes back to the role of a husband in a marriage. It goes back to roles, and God is very specific about those roles. And yet at the end of the day, it comes down to this. You know what? Who is God to tell us what to do? He is God. What's your next question? Is it appropriate? Is what I'm going to wear appropriate? A woman cannot claim to fear God and yet disregard what his word says about her behavior. A woman cannot claim to love God with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength and then contradict God's design for her in the church and still claim that she loves him. It's impossible to do both. Here's my question. Are you known by how you look or by your service for the Lord? Looks fade. You're going to work hard to try to keep them. But they're going to run away. And you're going to run after them, but you know what? But good works are deposited in an eternal bank account where rust doesn't destroy and moth, nor thieves come in to steal, but they are an eternal bank deposit in your service to God. If you walk with the Lord and you are a godly woman, then you will be known for your heart for him and your service for his kingdom and not just how you look. As to the ministry of women, this passage teaches that the activities of women are restricted in certain situations, specifically public worship, uh, when godly men are to take the lead in prayer and in teaching, as we'll see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The appearance of women are to reflect a godly lifestyle, properly arranged, modest, discreet, uh, deferring attention to the Lord. And the last thing, as we look at this, is that the the ministry of women involves the attitudes of a woman should reveal, should reveal a submissive spirit. Now notice verses 11 through 15. It says, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You know, sadly, many today, when they hear the word submission, they just blow a gasket. I mean, it's just like, submission, submit. You know, it's like, you know, and this is where sound doctrine comes to play. The word subjection or submissiveness literally means to rank under. And has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. Order and authority, not value or ability. See, submission is not subjugation. Submission is recognizing God's order in the home and in the church and society and then joyfully obeying it. It's important that we recognize God's authority as it relates to these areas. When a Christian wife joyfully submits to the Lord and to her own husband, it brings out the best in her. For this to happen, a Christian husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church. Submission is something that we build up one another with and not something we use to destroy other people and to put them in their place. That is not biblical submission. It is to rank under for the purpose of order, not value or ability. 
Christians should submit to each other. Wives should submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Unfortunately, the so-called women's liberation movement or feminism has distorted God's truth in this matter. And rather than liberate women, such movements have, I believe, produced even more bondage for them. I want to make this as clear as I can. No one in the history of the world has done more to liberate women than the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody in the history of the world has done more to liberate all humanity than the Lord Jesus Christ who died upon the cross to free us from the bondage of sin for those who would believe and trust in him. Let a woman receive instruction. It has to do with a most incredible thing and that is this. The command literally is this. Let woman be taught. How about that? Let woman be taught. In this culture, as in our day even today in the Middle East, the predominant philosophy by men is that women are not to be taught, that women should be re- remain ignorant, because when they're ignorant, then we can basically keep them in subjugation to us. The word of God was revolutionary. It was liberating. At the time of this writing, that you know, the reality was that women were not permitted to be educated. You know, keep them ignorant and we can control them. The word of God sets us free from such manipulation. It's the adage of, you know what, do what we say when we say it with no questions asked, and we'll get along just fine. That's heresy. The word of God frees people from those who would try to control and manipulate us by violating the truth of God's word. Let women be taught. And it may seem obvious to us that women should be taught God's word since they're spiritually equal in Christ, but that certainly wasn't the reality then. In fact, it says that Barclay, William Barclay says this about the Greek society. It says, the respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone, and she never went to any public assembly. See, the existence of such mindset at Ephesus may have contributed to the overreaction of women saying, hey, now we're free in Christ, now we can do whatever we want to do. And the reality of it is, no, that's not true. That's like Romans 6. Hey, you know what? What shall we say? Should we continue to sin now that grace may increase? Hey, may it never be. Because I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven, it doesn't matter how I live my life. That's nonsense. Because you're a Christian and forgiven, it matters even more now how you live your life. Because you're salt in your life to the world. People are looking at your life saying, that man claims to be a Christian. That woman claims to be a Christian. Let's keep an eye on him. Let's keep an eye on her. Let's see how they respond in certain situations. Let's see how they, re- you know, let's see how they relate to one another. Let's see how the, what their marriage is like, what their relationship with their children are like. Let's see what, the, how, what kind of workers and employees that they are. Let's see what kind of boss he or she is. Let, let's watch their life. Because we're Christians, it matters how we live. It's hypocrisy to say, well, it doesn't matter. Hey, you know what? I'm forgiven. (laughs) That's right, you're forgiven. Now glorify God in your earthly body. He paid a price, the death of Christ upon the cross to free you from sin. It does matter. And because you're saved as a woman, it does still matter how you live your life to God as a woman. And as we look at this, this is what the point is. He says, in entire submissiveness. In In context, it refers to being content in the role of a learner in the public worship setting. You say, well, how do you know that that's what it means? Well, read verse 12. He, he, he interprets it for us. The wonderful thing about reading the Bible is that actually, you know, we can learn by reading it. 
In verse 13, 11, it says, well, let women quietly receive instruction with entire submissive. Well, what's he talking about? Women are supposed to be quiet. They're supposed to just be submissive. Wait a minute. But I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet and be content in learning and sitting under a godly man who's teaching the word of God. So the context is very simple. You know what? Women can express their opinions. Any man who doesn't listen to his wife's opinion is a foolish person because God brings both of us together to complement one another. Where I am blind in some areas, Linda brings insight and vision that I can see things from her perspective that I can't see in mine. And the same goes true with her. The bottom line is we're brought together to complement one another to become one flesh in the eyes of God and we become one perfect unit before God as we are submitting to his authority in our life and as we walk in obedience with him. It's a foolish person who doesn't listen to the counsel of others. It's specifically referring in context to a public worship setting. He's saying to women, hey, you know what? Receive the instruction from God from a godly man in this environment it doesn't say you can't teach it doesn't say you can't pray it doesn't say you can't express your opinions it doesn't say any of that it's saying in the church setting this is god's god's ordained order that men would teach and a woman would not exercise authority over a man very simple it's just god's program does it mean that women are not to teach of course not. In fact, women are even commanded to teach. Older women should teach younger women. Timothy was taught at home by his mother and his God, grandmother. She was a perfect example. He was a perfect example of a godly influence by his mother and grandmother. Women who loved the Lord that, that brought him up and raised him and nourished him in, in the Lord. I mean, it's a, a beautiful example of that. Priscilla and Aquila, they took Apollos aside. They didn't correct him in public. They sat, they listened. And Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and began to explain to him in greater detail the truth of God's word. They didn't correct him in public. All that they were saying was, you know what? Just sit quietly, listen to the word of God, allow God to speak to you through the power of his word. But it doesn't even mean that, you know, I've had many women who have come to me afterwards and said, I got a question about this passage or this chapter. What does this mean or what did you mean when you said that? I don't have a problem with that. We're all to examine scripture. We're all to make sure that what's being said is in the word of God. We're to seek it eagerly and excitedly. And man, I can't wait. And we're to dialogue about spiritual things. Because we all are in Christ equal brothers and sisters in the Lord. But in certain settings, there are certain roles that God has given to men and certain roles that he's given to women. That's all. And so he goes through and he explains it. And the argument is very simple. Number one, he goes back to, well, why is this the way it is? Notice, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. The creative order. It's at this point he gives these three reasons why Christian men in the church should be spiritual leaders and not have a woman or women usurp that role. Number one, it goes to the original design of God. Adam was created first and then Eve. Now, we all know the jokes about why that's so. You know, God made man, took a look and said, hey, I can do better than that, you know, and then made women. I mean, you know, we've all heard them and things of that nature. But the bottom line of all of this, you go like this, well, but why God create Adam first and then Eve? I don't know. And he doesn't tell us. And I'm thinking it's because that's what he wanted to do. Hey, amen? Is that, is that okay with everybody? That's what he chose to do, and Paul uses it, the word of God inspired, the Holy Spirit uses it to keep everything in order. Remember, Adam was created first, and then Eve, there's a creative order in everything God does. Why? I don't know. He just does. 
And I always like people say, you know what, that's the first question I'm going to ask the Lord, this one, that one, or the other one. And I just laugh. I say, you know what, when you see him face to face, I'm thinking that your question is going to seem really stupid to you then. You know, it's like, never mind. <laughs> never mind. It all, it all makes sense right now. Never mind. See, the issue is only authority. Man was created first. He goes in and gives us a second argument or reason that men should be in a leadership position in, in the church. He says, because it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. This has to do with man's fall into sin. Satan deceived the woman into sinning. The man sinned with his eyes wide open. Now, because Adam rejected the God-given order, he listened to his wife, he disobeyed God, and when he did that, it brought sin and death into the world. And we need to recognize what he's saying here is very simple. He says that when man violates God's creative order, nothing good comes out of it. Nothing good. Adam should have asserted his authority. He should have been a man of God. He should have protected his wife from the deception of the enemy. That was his role. That was his responsibility to protect her, to nourish her, to cherish her, to love her. He should have been a spiritual leader and he did not fulfill his role that God had created him to fulfill and he gave up that position and his wife was deceived by the enemy and we're talking about a book that talks about deception. Be alert for spiritual deception. Be alert for false doctrines. Be alert for false teachers. Be alert to the lies of the devil. And the lies of the devil began when he deceived Eve. And Adam abandoned his position of leadership. He listened to his wife. And it should have been the other way around because that's how God had created it. He listened to her. When he listened to her, he disobeyed God. When he disobeyed God, he sinned. And when he sinned, then the whole world fell into spiritual death. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. That's what happens when we violate God's creative order. That's what happens when churches say, and they use God's word, and they misquote it, and they say, oh, Romans 3.28 says, you know what? There's neither male nor female in the sight of God. That's why we ordained this woman as a priest. You know what? Nothing good comes out of violating God's creative order. Now, as we close this, the beauty of the ministry of women is summarized in verse 15. As sin entered into the world because of the deception of Eve who led her husband who did what he did and he rebelled against God. It wasn't like he was tricked. He went in wide, eyes wide open and he did what was wrong before God. But the beauty of all this is this. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Here's what God has to say to every woman who has children. And by the way, not every woman's designed by God to be married. Some are designed to be single. Some are designed to be celibate. The reality of it is for those who are designed by God to be married and you're married, here's what God has to say. Listen, you know, the stigma of sin coming into the world was because you were deceived and Adam allowed you to take the role that he should have had and should have followed. And because of that, sin entered into the world, you know, and we're all in a mess because of it. But God says, but you know what? But the redeeming ultimate deliverance from that stigma is that women bear children and men do not. No man can ever know the sense of intimacy that a woman has with her child. No man can know what it's like to carry a child in the womb for nine months. 
No man can know what it's like to give birth and the birth and the pain that comes through childbirth and the deliverance that follows. I mean, you know, we, we all been there and we all think we know. It's like, it's all right, suck it up, you know, typical guy. You know, meanwhile, I'm like passing out. Our, our third child, you know, Krista was born and you know, it was like a mess, man. It was like, it was like a mash unit. Stuff was flying everywhere and blood was flying and, and I was sitting in the background and, and I'm just like going. And all I heard was the, as I fumbled out down the hallway, a nurse saying to the doctor, someone get him, get him, get him, get him. That's the last thing I remember. So, so you know, no man can ever know what a mother knows. No man can ever know that. And the greatest calling for any woman who has given birth to a child or has child or, a child or children in her care, there is no greater honor than to be a mother who trains up a child in the way that he should go so that when he is old, he won't depart from it. There is no greater calling, there is no greater ministry for women than to raise a godly heritage. Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother, there is no greater calling. And it saddens me when I see the devil and the lies in our culture trying to tell women to become just like men. That is the greatest disservice the devil's ever done to you ladies. You know, to be treated the same as a man, are you kidding me? To have the respect of men, to have a man still open the door for you, to have a person still show that kind of, uh, of respect, chivalry's not dead. It's only dead because our culture is trying to kill it, and you are promoting it. And I tell you, stop buying into the lie and trust the Word of God. There is no higher calling than to be a mother who leads a child to faith in the Savior and nourishes that child and cherishes that child and raises that child. As the Bible says here, if she continues in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The church is structured, the family is structured, society is structured by God. Each of us have a specific role or responsibility. It has to do with authority. It doesn't have to do with value or ability. The greatest ministry for a mom is to train up her child in the way that she should go. And that way is God's way. And that way is teaching that child about sin, about judgment, about consequences, and about the love of God that's found in the only Savior the world will ever know, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross for the sins of the world effective only for those who trust in him as their savior. He was raised three days later. He is alive today. There is no greater message that you can share with your children and that all of us can share with those that God brings into our life. We have a specific role, a specific task. Stop fighting God and let's get busy doing it. Father, thank you for the word of God. That it is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training righteousness. God, help us never to distort your word to say what we want it to say for our own agenda. But to teach it in the full counsel of God so that your people and the spirit of God within them can affirm that what they're hearing is from your lips to their hearts. God, we just thank you for that. And God, I just, I just ask a special blessing on every woman that's here today who has been mistreated, who has been abused, who has been manipulated and controlled by maybe men who have tried to you know, even distort the word of God for their own gain. God, help them to...
be soft and tender towards your word and to see what you say is truth. And that your desire for all of us, including them, is to, to release them from bondage and to free them in Christ. You tell us that Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. God, may we all experience that abundant life. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.